I didn't get to know him as an adult and as a, as a parent, as a husband, um, as an uncle to my son. His name is Ron and stop calling him the other victim. It's not the Goldman family against the killer. You know, it's, it's the state of California. So you really have no say in anything, but we didn't know that. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the executive director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. We find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty. Not guilty. With those two simple words, an American saga had ended. For two years, the world had focused its attention on O.J. Simpson and was held captive to his murder trial. Celebrity, politics, and murder all merged together to create a media spectacle. In this circus, what was often lost was that there were two families that were mourning loved ones. Two families had had their lives shattered in unimaginable ways. Two souls had been lost, Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown. With the words not guilty ringing through the air, many were convinced that justice had not been done and that the justice system had failed. The Goldman family refused to settle for these unbalanced scales of justice and took additional steps to hold the defendant accountable. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams. And with us today, we have Kim and Fred Goldman. Kim and Fred, we're honored to have you with us. 27 years after the murder of your brother and son, Ron, we'll talk today about civil justice healing and the way you've tried to protect and share his legacy. Please let me know if there's anything we discussed that is too much. We understand that healing is a journey and that you take that day by day. So let's start with a very simple question. How are you both feeling? Um, I still feel lost. Um, I don't think that'll ever change. Uh, every day there's something that reminds me of Ron and, uh, and therefore everything that's missing. 
Um, yeah, I, I would I would tend to say um, I'm right along with my dad. Um, I think you know there there's this concept of closure which I I, I abhor, <laughs> so um, because I don't think it actually exists um, for people that have um, suffered any kind of trauma. Um, I think, you know, there's this, this belief of like, you know, it gets easier with time. I've always said for me that it just gets more permanent. Um, something strikes me every day. I have a, a handsome son who oddly enough has characteristics of my brother. Um, so I see bouts of him, um, which I love and I hate it in the same moment. Um, big, big moments, um, they're bittersweet um, because there's always something missing. So um, you learn to move with it, you learn to live with it. Um, but it's uh, every day. It's a, it's a surprise because um, you never know what's coming. We want to remember and honor the life that Ron lived. So if you both feel comfortable, could each of you describe a memory that you had as a family over the decades that has maybe kept you moving forward or that just makes you smile still? You know, I'll, I'll start, Dad. Um, I this is this is the part that that honestly it sucks because the, the memories are fleeting right and um as i'm entering the the fifth decade of my life my memory is not as good as it was um and so that's really painful um so i write things down because i don't want to forget sometimes i talk to my dad and he doesn't have the same memories um that's really hard when you're suffering loss um but there are definitely flashes that i have of my brother um when we were growing up and, and, you know, Ron and I were always together. Um, I, I have very vivid memories of, of me following him around like a little puppy dog. I always make the joke that my brother let me hang out with all of his friends until I got boobs. Um, and then I wasn't allowed <laughs> to be around the other boys anymore. Um, but, you know, laughing, joking, tickling, dancing, um, you know, playing cops and robbers in the house, pushing each other down the stairs in sleeping bags. And I know it sounds dumb, but that's what we did. We pushed each other around in laundry baskets. And, you know, we did all the normal sibling stuff. Um, but as we got older, um, our, our relationship changed because we started to experience life in a different way and, and our connection deepened, um, which I think for me is the hardest part because I didn't get to know him as an adult and as a, as a parent, as a husband, um, as an uncle to my son. Like, so I think for me, that's the part that, that is the hardest, but the childhood memories are amazing. And, and the bond that we created as kids and what my dad helped us develop, um, that's something I treasure forever. Uh, and for me, uh, Kim sort of touched on it, but uh, every, visual memory I have of uh, Ron and Kim are them holding hands, hugging, being together. And uh, I have several pictures on my nightstand at home. And uh, one is the two of them walking, holding hands. And the other is the two of them hugging. And I remember when I took those pictures, or any picture, I never had to say hold hands or hug because that just happened naturally for them. So um, it's a memory that is vivid in my mind and it, it never goes away. Additionally, I, I recall all the wonderful things that, that Ron did and was, and was interested in doing 
I can't think of the charity right now, but Ron went to work for a charitable organization, uh, helping kind of um, take care of patients. Take care, not in a medical sense, but in the- It's cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy, that's exactly what it was, thank you. Um, but took care of in terms of sort of entertaining. And after Ron was killed, uh, I went to this place and talked to them, and they told me that Ron was a the the smile in every one of their days. Uh, he would two of the stories that they shared with me were that uh, he came in one day with a uh, boombox, and uh, all the all of folks that he was gonna. Uh, sort of take care of that day, we're all sitting in this big room. And he said, these are cerebral palsy patients. He said, time to dance. And he turned on the boom box and started wheeling patients around in their wheelchairs uh, and doing dance moves and everything else. And they said that all of the patients were smiling and laughing and giggling and were having a wonderful time. And then they shared one other situation with me, and that was that Ron one day asked if he could take a group of the patients out for lunch. And they went to a fast food restaurant, and Ron encouraged each of them to order whatever they wanted. And the person behind the counter was a little snippy with one of them and said, I can't understand you, speak better. And Ron snapped back at him and said, you will listen, they will talk. And uh, it always struck me that Ron was so uh, aware of others and how he could be of assistance to them. Uh, but that was my son. He was always there for others and his big smile. Those are amazing stories. And I think it's so important that people hear them because especially in this case, people often forget that there are victims involved, but I think in a lot of cases, people forget about the victim to focus on a defendant. Absolutely. Because we are talking so much about Ron and what an amazing person he was. I, I wanna talk about this shift in identity Ron went from your brother, your son, to what the media started calling the other victim, which is just so demeaning. So what steps were you able to take to make sure that the media, one, shared accurate information about him, but also to make sure that his story was told too? It was very frustrating to hear Ron referred to as the other victim. Um, and it was, it didn't matter what we were watching on TV, it was always the other victim. And one evening or one after, late afternoon, we were watching and Patty, my wife, said something to the effect, I'm getting so tired of hearing this. And whatever, whatever the station was that we were watching is the, is the station she called by, on, on the phone and told them one who she was and then said, his name is Ron 
Excuse me for getting choked up. His name is Ron, and stop calling him the other victim. He has a name. And they were apologetic, and they started calling him by name after that. Um, But it was not, I think, untypical that victims lose their identity in in the midst of the the horror but we were we were determined not to have ron memory or not not to have him lost in the mix so my my memory is a little bit different dad um i don't think it happened that quickly that there was a shift to start referring to ron as ron um i think it took years i mean to have Ron be mentioned um, at, if I could use the term loosely as equal billing as Nicole, um, and that is not to take away from her at all, but it was always Nicole's friend, Ron, or Nicole and her friend, um, and it was Nicole and her friend, Ron. Like it, it, to, to move from, you know, even being mentioned at all as even the other victim to then he got upgraded to her friend, then he got it, like it, it was a process. And I, and I know that sounds crappy, but it was still frustrating for us because he was constantly being cast aside as not being the, the, the bigger celebrity victim. I mean, it was stupid, but that's what we were battling. When we were in the courtroom, um, we always wore um, pins with Ron's face on it. I still have it in my car. We weren't allowed to wear anything that was um, reminiscent of Ron or Nicole. Then we had little angel pins that we thought that could be, you know, something that was symbolic of the victims. We were told we couldn't wear that. Marsha Clark and Chris Darden, the prosecutors were told they couldn't have anything that represented the victims because it was too biased um, for the jury. Um, so it's a, it was a real, it was a real struggle. Um, I, I do think that because my dad and I did not stop um, making the point over and over and over again of who Ron was, is, and that he was a member of our family and loved and missed, um, it started to train the media, honestly, um, as to how to start being more sensitive and respectful to victims and not just cast them aside as the, 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 you know, the, the person, you know, dead by the street. I mean, if you watch any kind of media, you know, they, they do it in such a way that's so desensitized. Um, but I think for us, um, it was really hard because we were just this little family that was plucked from obscurity. And again, this is nothing about Nicole and her family. Um, but to be, you know, like, you know, an afterthought um, was really hard. And um, my brother deserves better. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate that it took some time um, to, to get our message out. But, um, you know, my brother is like, he's, he's a brother now. People know him as, a, as, as our brother and a loved one, and, and they know him as a hero. Um, my, bro- my dad and I are very vocal about how my brother did some really heroic things in his final minutes of his life and that should never be forgotten and uh but it was a struggle it wasn't it wasn't so easy i'll I'll tell you that there was clearly media bias to focus on nicole did you ever feel that there was unequal weight in the investigation or in the prosecutor's office was ron treated in a different way than nicole by by the public officials um 
I think, well, if I might, um, you know, we all learn from TV how crime is supposed to be solved, right? So we, we watch all these wonderful crime shows to tell you that, oh, you get a knock on your door at two o'clock in the morning to let, you know, well, we didn't get that. Um, again, I, I don't ever want this to sound disparaging to Nicole's family if I need to keep prefacing it by that, but Nicole's family did. Someone came to their door and, and was with them when they delivered the news. Um, we were not that fortunate. My dad and Patty, Patty got a call from the coroner um, uh, at whatever time it was in the day. And, and, um, you know, all she needed to do was say, yes, I'm, I'm married to Fred or I'm the stepmom or whatever. And then they just delivered the news. It was no, is anyone home with you? Do you have health problems? I mean, it was just blurting it out, um, which is really insensitive, um, considering how high profile it already was at that point. Um, and again, I think that because my dad and I kept showing up and, and demanding that we be involved, um, it did kind of flip a little bit within the prosecutor's office. Uh, we, we had codes to the floor, um, the locked floor, which was unheard of. We had you know, great support from the people in the district attorney's office, um, but we demanded it. And it's too, one of the things I know we've talked about offline, Renee, is making sure that our, our victims and survivors know what their rights are and knowing. And we didn't know, we just didn't know any other way. So we were banging on the door literally to be let in, not understanding that it's not the Goldman family against the killer, you know, it's, it's the state of California. So you really have no say in anything, but we didn't know that. And we just were like, how do you not tell us? And so I mean, we didn't know how the case was going to be presented. We didn't get tipped off on anything beforehand. We weren't discussed with any of the strategy. We learned evidence right along with the country. Um, I don't know if that's normal, um, but that was our experience. But because my dad and I kept literally pounding on the door, it softened them. Um, and I think it refocused them um, in terms of what their real purpose and mission was. And that was about Ron and Nicole. We do talk about that a lot. It's something that the general public does not realize that a prosecutor does not represent the victim's interests. Yeah. They are good, hardworking people. Their hearts are in the right place, but their job description does not say protect victim's interests. It says represent the interests of the state. And so oftentimes, unless victims are privately represented, they are kind of left to float alone or just with a victim advocate. Right. And we had a great victim advocate. I mean, Mark Arenas, I love him dearly. We still stay in touch. He was amazing, but he was a young kid. You know, he was like, this was his first big case. And so we were all learning together. Um, but we just, our family just wasn't going to have it any other way because we didn't, again, know any other way. So we were like, how do you, how do you not talk to us about stuff? I mean, I remember, I remember one, and I don't want to get into the specifics of it, but I, I remember there was one one situation that came up, and I and Chris or Marsha, I don't even remember who said that. Well, we didn't want to tell you ahead of time because we didn't want to worry about leaks. I'm like, why the hell would we be leaking information? We're on your team. We're we're on your side, you know. But they I, they were protective of their case, and I get that. But it's really isolating, and um, when you're already feeling trauma at the level that we were, to then be kept at bay with things that directly impact your family and, and it, it's, it's incredibly isolating and no one prepares you for that part for sure. Even now I try to tell victims that just be prepared, like ask your questions, but be prepared that there's some things that they just can't share with you and you got to find space for that. I, I would agree. I think that the bottom line is uh, when it comes to uh, certainly the trial uh, for victims, um, they are just, I hate to use the word, they're, they're just a, a person in the court. 
Um, they, they typically don't have any specific rights. They don't have a, 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 the opportunity to, to say anything or be part of anything. They're just there. And the only way that that changes is if the victims speak up. And I encourage all victims to speak up at all times. Fred, I was going to ask, you're now a victim advocate in Arizona. How has this experience dictated how you, you handle and assist victims within the process? Um, for me, in talking to victims, I encourage them at all times to be vocal. Uh, if it is comfortable for them to speak up and speak out, to do so and to not hesitate and be worried that somebody is um, not going to like the fact that you're speaking up. It's your right, it's your prerogative to speak up and ask questions. And I think that every victim, I think it's important to them that they do so. Now, the trial lasted for two very long years. Did the level of support in your interactions, both with Marsha Clark and Chris Darden, did it change over the two years from the beginning to the end? Was there a shift? And what was the level of support you received? And how did that change? I would say it absolutely shift, uh, shifted. Um, and I can say this publicly because Marsha and I've talked about it. Um, she was much more open and warmer to my dad and I and our family in the beginning. Um, as we moved through it, um, she became far more closed off and distant and shut down um, uh, and focused. I don't want to take that away from her. She was enduring so many other things outside of, of our case. Um, you know, if you if people remember, you look back, I mean, she was going through a custody battle. She had naked pictures of her exposed, like there were threats. I mean, we were all, all of us were getting threats. Like there's lots of things that people don't always understand about how big that case got and how dangerous it got from a personal perspective for us. But, um, and Chris, on the other hand, when we first started was very shut down, was very just all business all the time. Um, and the two of them swapped roles. I became very close with Chris, um, still um, am to this day, um, but the people in the district attorney's office, um, they opened, they opened the office to us. I mean, we had escorts every day because again, we were being threatened and we didn't want to go in the main public door. So we had different access and we had district attorney investigators that would pick us up every day and make sure we were safe and escort us where we needed to go. But there was a, a, a friendship that we developed between everybody in the district attorney's office because it became really about Ron and Nicole at some point. And because we were there so much, we became family members. Um, you know, we were, you know, socializing outside because we were the only ones that totally got it. You know, we were in this weird bubble and we were the only ones that we could truly trust with what was happening because it was such an anomaly in terms of the, the, the media um, attention and, and, you know, what was happening to us. And those are the only people that, that, that understood and that I could say whatever I was feeling with and like, yeah, me too, that happened or, or wh whatever it was. I mean, it was just, it's, it's weird. It's completely bonding. And, um, but again, I go back to, it's still very isolating, even in that process, because I had to keep looking at them and thinking they have a job to do. They're not always looking out for me. They, 
it isn't that every piece of evidence gets to get in. They have to weigh it and strategize. And I didn't always agree. And again, we didn't have a say. And so there was a lot of, you know, just having to trust and trusting strangers, right, to do the right thing by my brother and, and Nicole. And that was a, a, a long process of trying to learn how to do that. I don't know if that answered your question, Renee, so. It did. Fred, did you have anything to add? No, Kim summed it up pretty well. Um, my recollection, unfortunately, of a virtually anything is less than it ought to be at this point. But um, well, yeah, I mean, I similar... in your defense, I mean, I know this isn't a criticism to you, but my dad still had to work. You know, my dad wasn't afforded time off from work. You know, they 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 weren't. I mean, they were quote unquote supportive, but my dad still had to go to work and. And that was in some ways probably helpful for my dad's healing um, a little bit. But, you know, I was there, Patty was there, we were in, we were in everybody's faces. So our relationship was different um, slightly be because of just the time spent. Um, yeah, I would agree know. with that. Totally. Okay, anyway. And we know that when a trauma happens, we know this now, everybody has a different biological reaction. And so yeah. memories might change based on what your biology tells your body to do right in that moment right were either of you given the opportunity to testify or did you want to testify or were you able to provide a victim impact statement no victim impact statement because there was no conviction um, um i testified um i testified to finding um i don't know um a receipt in 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 my brother's apartment um or a bag or something because we were trying to establish a timeline um and so i had to testify to being in ron's apartment and seeing how his his pants were thrown on the bed or his um his shirt or something to, it was something in regards to the shower and like how we saw the apartment to to, to be able to establish a timeline um and i i remember having to, Johnny Cochran cross-examined me. I was panicked mess, but I was like, I could do this. This is my only contribution. I can, I, and I had muster up whatever strength I could. Um, and I felt like in the end that I contributed nothing. I mean, it's a terrible feeling, you know, it's a, like I wanted to have some piece of information that could be the smoking gun, but who the hell am I? Like I had nothing. My brother was a, you know, an innocent bystander in the whole thing. There was really nothing. Um, but I keep trying to tell myself that it was something important um, because I need, I needed to feel like I was doing something um, because it's a very helpless, it's a very helpless feeling to feel like you can't provide any comfort well, and, or safety and, in the aftermath. And the reality is, I think the thing that is always very important and helpful is to be there, to be there to speak up uh, and don't be lost. In, in the background somewhere. Um, I, I know that in many cases, victims, families are kept out of the courtroom uh, legally because the um, defense doesn't want the, the jury to see uh, someone that might influence their thinking. Uh, yeah, we were we were told at some point we might be potential witnesses and so that was why they were trying to keep us out and we were like f that like we are i mean we had we had a separate court hearing because shapiro went into the judge to try to keep 
all of our family members out of the courtroom. Um, and their whole excuse yeah. was like, and now again, in, in for Nicole's family, because they were witnesses to domestic violence and some of the things I could understand that. Um, but that wasn't enough. And I mean, we got very, we had seven seats available to our two families, seven seats between our two families. That was all we were allowed. Um, and we had to fight for those hardcore fighting for that. That's ridiculous and unheard of. And that happens more times than I know. Um, but I have victims and survivors that'll, that will email me and ask me, do I stay? Do you think I should go? What do I do when they show autopsy pictures or coroner's reports? Do I stay in the room? I haven't seen the pictures. And I said, you have the right to ask to see those pictures in private. Have a view and go to the prosecutor and say, I, I want to be there. I don't want to leave the room. I want to make sure the jury sees me, but I don't want to be you know, surprised. I mean, we were surprised. Marsha accidentally showed crime scene pictures without showing my dad and I in the opening statements um, and then turned over and said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. But I mean, that was jarring. Um, we never saw the autopsy pictures um, in the courtroom, um, but we were there. Um, and so it's really important, again, to my dad's point earlier, um, if you can handle it, if you can muster up the courage and the strength to do it, it's super important to be present in that room as often as you possibly can um, and be who you are. This whole issue of you have to be stoic and don't show emotion. Again, F that. It's all That's all yeah. bull. That's all total bull. You just I have a, be I have a trucker mouth today. Sorry. Yeah. I do have a question about defense counsel, Kib, mostly because you mentioned Johnny Cochran and that you were cross examined by him. Did you have many interactions with them? And did you feel like they treated you with dignity or were they just awful? I'm going to. I'm going to just simply say that I think that every single one of the defense attorneys were in the same level of crap as their client. Every single one of them. We were in that courtroom every single day for the better part of nine months and not one single one of them ever privately or in the courtroom or in any way ever said, I'm sorry for your loss. They were low life pieces of scum. I didn't have and still don't have any respect for any of them. Jump yeah. right in, Kim. No, I, I, I would say the same. I mean, I, I understand. So I have a whole belief system that my head and my heart don't always have to be in, in concert with each other. So my, my, my heart um, you know, says one thing in my head is saying, I understand as, as defense attorneys that they can't, you know, lower, lower their guard or be shown as vulnerable or, or sensitive or whatever, because they have a job to do and it has to be an alliance, you know, with their client. But my heart tells me as a human, you can defend your client to the hill, but how do you be so disrespectful and, and disparaging and just effing rude to victims' families. You don't have to in any way say that you think your client did it, but my God, how do you not just be human? Two people died, no one's arguing that. People decapitated nearly. How do you not acknowledge that there were two lives lost? And that was what always bothered me, um, that there was no extension of just human, human anywhere. And it was like they doubled down on it because somehow my dad and I were the ones to blame for this, you know, Nicole's him, the ones to like, and still to this day, there's such animus. I mean, for those that are still alive, there's such animus still to our family. 
um, Carl Douglas was one of their defense attorneys. He would go to the judge and complain about me, literally go to the judge and complain, trying to get me kicked out of the courtroom for the duration of the trial was trying to get me kicked out of the courtroom because he didn't like me sitting behind and making comments or, or, or crying or snickering or what, I mean, just ridiculous, ridiculous. And it just adds insult to injury and it's unnecessary. I wouldn't have thought anything of them if they just nodded, even just like a subtle, like a, a mouthing of I'm sorry, anything, but absolutely not. I mean, and it's disgusting. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. And a double down in a civil case. Double, the civil attorneys did the exact same thing. They were horrible to my dad and I, but that's a whole other. That's absolutely. The rest of the yeah. Thanks, Kim. I think it's so important for the public to hear about your experiences with those attorneys and really with all victim advocates throughout the justice process. And I'm so glad you brought up the civil case. We are just about out of time for this week, but I hope next week you'll tune in. Kim and Fred will join us again, and we're going to discuss the famous civil case and talk about how they have kept Ron's memory alive. Please join us then, and thanks for tuning in today. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.